The other day, Elliot and I were driving around town, um, as we often do, and she declared from the back seat that she felt, Mom, I think it's time for us to have a family motto, just kind of out of the blue. <laughs> this, is, this is Elliot's brain. I, I loved this idea. I was like, well, yes, of course we need to have a family motto, something that shapes us, molds us together as a family, something that calls us to something that's larger uh, than our individual selves. And so together, she and I sourced a few ideas. We bantered back and forth with a few of the ideas before Elliot went back to one of the ideas we had thrown out earlier in the conversation. And when she said it, we just knew. It just clicked. It's done. That's the family motto. Will you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this time that we have just to gather here today to be challenged by your words um, and stretched into a space of seeing what's possible. Um, we pray for those who are not able to be with us today, Aaron in the Dominican Republic, um, for Jen as she's traveling for work, um, as, as Kent William is settling into London, into his new home, and those who were unable to join us today. We just pray um, for our time together that you would just really open our eyes to a new way of experiencing the world around us. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen. So a little over a decade ago, I feel like my life was rocked in a pretty major way. Uh, that was around 2008 when we moved to San Francisco. So prior to that, I felt like I'd lived a fairly relatively sheltered life. My mom is here so she can attest to where I came from. Um, and, and so kind of fairly, I would almost say homogenous types of environments. Um, and I had grown up in that small town in the Midwest. I'd lived in various other relatively small towns um, in the Central Valley of California, as well as back in Illinois. Um, I'd experienced the stories of poverty and of the oppressed, I would say mainly during mission trips, um, where you would kind of swoop in for a small period of time and um, help others, but I'd never really learned to really seek to understand and move beyond kind of that context I had experienced to really understand the systems that were leading to that continued experience of poverty and oppression. I had lived in places where there was that kind of other side of the tracks space of town, which probably most of us have grown up in in our experiences. Um, and those were those spaces that you would kind of avoid if possible. So when we first arrived in SF or San Francisco, um, it was my first time living in a city. Um, and it was also my first time where I was really faced with that stark contrast of great wealth and great poverty, oftentimes right across the street from one another. I remember when we first talked about moving to San Francisco from the Chicago suburbs, um, again, super homogenous, uh, to San Francisco, we met with a highly regarded church planter and a catalyst for church planting in the city of San Francisco. She met us with suspicion and definitely with her walls up, um, really vetting us to ensure that we were just not another group of Christians uh, coming in from elsewhere to be the saviors of the city. She had seen far too many Christians coming from kind of the Midwestern subculture saying, we are going to come are going to do things the way that we do it in the Midwest and we are going to save San Francisco. And so she definitely, you know, put up the walls and said, 
you're going to have to do a little bit more work and a little bit more seeking to understand um, before coming into the city. So Aaron and I have really always approached, even before entering into San Francisco, we've always approached when we arrive in a new city by becoming students of the city. Really listening, observing, recognizing and understanding the unique ethos of the city that we inhabit. Not to come in with our American Christian subculture version of church, but to collaboratively create something new that would connect with the needs of that context. I was faced quickly at that time with the poverty and homelessness throughout the city. And initially, through partnerships developed with organizations like Youth with a Mission or YWAM um, and an organization called Because Justice Matters, I began to recognize the systematic issues that were leading people down paths of hopelessness. It's not a choice that you can just change and, quote, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. There are several layers of complexity I came to recognize and understand, and I was about to take a master class in gaining a deeper awareness and understanding. So I remember once doing what we called a shoe day for Because Justice Matters. Um, it was a day for women living in the Tenderloin District of San Francisco. Uh, this is an area of the city that is filled with extreme poverty, exploitation, rampant drug abuse, and that day that we served, I remember coming in, we'd collected donations, other organizations had collected donations. We had these like brand new boxes of shoes for women. And I remember when we got there, the leaders were very intentional. Only female volunteers in the building. The male volunteers would stand outside at the door um, to let people in and out. Um, so Aaron and a couple of other men stood outside, of the, outside that door to let the women in and keep the men out. The leaders then shared with us that we were going to be personal shoppers with one woman at a time. And so we would help them find their size, we would help them select what style of shoe they wanted. We really only had a, we had a lot of sneakers, which was really good. Um, and we would have them try them on to ensure that they had that right shoe that fit them perfectly. We were very delicate and loving as we would kneel to remove the shoes that she came in wearing. Um, provide her with fresh socks and help her slip on her new pairs of pair of shoes that fit just for her. I think in the past when I had done events like that, you would just you would pass out the shoes. You'd be like, "Oh, you need some shoes. Here's some shoes. You know, what size are you? Okay, here you go." And I was kind of like, "Why are we doing this differently?" And what I came to understand was in us taking that time to ensure that those shoes fit and that she was walking out wearing those shoes, it limited some of that opportunity that would often happen where those men that were standing outside the door waiting to get in, those were usually their pimps or the men that were controlling them. And if they just grabbed a pair of shoes without making sure it was for them, those men would often take those shoes and they would sell them. Or sometimes those women would sell those shoes for whatever needs that they had. And we really, really wanted in that moment for them to have shoes just for them. Uh, when I saw the various types of shoes that they were coming in and the various, if you could even call some of them shoes, um, this was a special way that we could show um, their value. These were things, I'd, like I said, I'd never really thought of before. Many of these women had found themselves under the control of others, feeling that there was no other option for them. In this simple act of shopping with them, kneeling and placing the shoes on their feet, 
tying the laces, ensuring their comfort, our small acts provided a reminder of their freedom, their value, and their humanity. We created inviting spaces throughout the room with warm food and drinks and encouraged women to stay for as long as they wanted to. It's also part of why we had them shop one at a time. We wanted them to stay in that space for as long as possible. Aaron can speak much more to what his experience was like outside those doors as he was trying to keep the men from coming in who were trying to look inside to keep an eye on their women, uh, trying to get through and clearly uncomfortable about losing control in the moment. I can't imagine what it would have been like to be out there um, in that space. The team was prepared to help any of the women that needed help to move out of an unsafe situation, but we also knew it wouldn't be as easy as a one-time conversation. This was a safe space for them. There were regular events. They do a nail day. They still do the nail day um, and do a nail salon um, for women to come in. And it's an opportunity just to share in conversation and continue to create those safe spaces. So whether it's their first time walking through the door or their 50th time walking through the door, in creating that relationship, restoring their value, and acknowledging the complexity of their situations, it gives them more opportunity to help those women get out of unsafe scenarios that they find themselves in. Last week we read in Micah 6.8, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. Mercy requires us to come alongside of others to hear and understand their story with no judgment. We have to lose our tendency at times to, what I say, clutch our pearls. That was something I definitely had to learn as I was experiencing and understanding and hearing the stories of the lives of others and the choices that they were making that may not have made sense to me, but that wasn't my space. My space was just to sit and listen and understand. Actively listening and recognizing the spaces where environment, lack of community, and structures had also failed them. I often remind Elliot that there are not bad people in this world, but people who have made bad choices. And the more I really stopped to see and engage, the more I saw how systemic challenges, as well as lack of community, often led people down a path of poor choices when they felt that was all that they had left. So our church in San Francisco was at the corner of Fifth and Mission. Across the street were the new condos where startup founders like Jack Dorsey of Twitter and at that time Square lived. And then at the other end of the block was Great Poverty. Um, a block away on Sixth Street, that was considered the skid row of San Francisco. It was filled with SROs, which are single renter occupancy hotels, um, often uh, run by slumlords. Um, that were making lots and lots of money off of the backs of those that were the most at risk and in need. But it was a step up from homelessness. Um, and it was an opportunity um, working with case managers to kind of have a permanent place over your head, even though sometimes they weren't still the safest places. At the corner of Sixth and Mission was the Rose Hotel. Due to our proximity as a church where we met for our gatherings, one day, a man named Paul came into our service um, on a Sunday morning and then began coming each week. He approached Aaron one day with a vision of starting a Bible study at the Rose. He described residents as staying in their rooms, as well as the drug deals and violence that occurred within and just outside of the doors of the place that they called home. 
The rose had a common area that he wanted, to be see, he wanted to see be used to build a stronger sense of community, to bring hope into their little corner of Sixth and Mission. I remember we started with a karaoke night, um, lots of bad singing, um, just trying to invite people to come into the community room. It was a room that just often sat empty. Um, and we had a few people come down, and, and Paul was super excited to have a handful of residents come out of their room that night to participate. A couple from our community came alongside of Paul and started that Bible study, and they met each and every week. And each and every week, a few more people would come out of their rooms and start to engage, share their stories, and really learn how to live life together. Few of them would eventually, you know, would sometimes make their way down the block and join our Sunday gatherings. And I remember listening and learning their stories, and some of them were some of my favorite people in San Francisco. Um, at that time, I remember I was like super pregnant, and they were all so excited for me. And it was such a really cool just space and time. As I heard their stories, Again, I think my preconceived notions of what gets people in these types of scenarios just continued to be shattered and broken down. These were men, several with advanced degrees, that had been in secure jobs, and through a series of events such as an injury that led to a loss of work, the breakdown of relationships without a community to support them, which led to a sense of hopelessness, that led to addiction, that led to losing everything. Working with case managers, they were able to sober up and find these semi-safe and stable housing within the SROs. But they did not see themselves as a person of value. You see, when society judges you and writes a narrative about you, saying that you're a bad person, that you make poor choices, no real person involved, you begin to believe that story is true. As members of the community of the Rose began to reconnect with their value, they began to take pride in their community, and some of them dreamed of putting together a block party for their neighborhood. Not something that most people would normally think to do along Skid Row. And so they wanted something to celebrate community, something to connect neighbors, to connect the other hotels along that stretch of Sixth into more of an even larger community. So we gathered donations, they created flyers and invitations, they passed them around the neighborhood, you know, put them up, I don't know if you've seen like the Fantasy A flyers around here in Seattle, they put flyers up around inviting people to come to their cookout. Uh, we got donations of food and in this back area behind the Rose that was all fenced in off an alley that connected the Rose Hotel um, and the place where we gathered each Sunday was just filled with rows and rows of tables and tons of grills and we just cooked out and played music and sat and shared stories and I remember there was one gentleman in particular that literally never left his room and he came out that day and I remember for Paul and Michael and Sam that was such a win and they were so excited and they were so happy and I got to chat with him and he was just such a lovely, lovely, lovely human being. And in that time of that cookout, they started just dreaming about what's possible, what's next, what can we do? They were ready to march to the mayor's office like that day and be like, we need to shut down the street so that we can have a giant block party, so we can do all of these things. Um, and they really, really were dreaming up and starting to think of how they could create deeper sense of community in their neighborhood and help one another overcome that systematic social 
and individual barriers that they had experienced holding them back for so long. Again, they were ready to go and get started right away. It was absolutely beautiful and I couldn't wait to see what they did next. Sadly, I didn't get the chance to see that, but that's a conversation for another day. So we left San Francisco a few months later and it wasn't until we arrived back in the Midwest that I'd realized just how much my life had been changed. When my eyes had been opened to the complexities of injustice in this world and the importance of walking alongside of others in those broken spaces, my worldview had expanded and things would never be the same for me. In our society, for several years now, we've been creating echo chambers. Thanks, social media. Cul cl you know, curating our own little spaces of people that think like us, view the world like us. And, and in that, we've created our tribes. But I've experienced for myself how that tribalism can sometimes squeeze out the opportunity of expanding our worldview and being shaped by Jesus. When we start to create expectations and parameters about who can belong or who can join in on the conversation, at times it doesn't feel like a safe space for people to share their perspective or the questions that maybe they have because we've created these echo chambers that say this is the right way of responding or this is the only way that we can react to this. And what are we missing uh, when we aren't creating those open spaces? We've lost the ability to seek to understand challenge one another and grow in deepening our connection to the heart, mind, and ways of Jesus, to be transformed by it. Instead, I often see, and we all experience, and I know I've probably done it, I know I've done it myself as well, we sometimes become driven by our own need to be right instead of seeking to understand. If we're unwilling to see ourselves among the broken, we miss the chance to travel together towards God's restoration. Becoming proximate doesn't happen through reading articles or through scrolling through social media for other people's accounts of what's happening in your neighborhood or in our world. Becoming proximate is your presence in the spaces you inhabit, stepping outside of your comfort zone to listen to the stories and witness firsthand the realities of injustice in our world. So whether you grew up in the church like I did, um, or not, I think most people are familiar with the story of the Good Samaritan. I think lots of people use this story in a lot of different contexts. Um, so again, whether you've grown up in the church or not, I think everybody has a familiarity. So in Luke chapter 10, we find the story of a man who was walking along the Jericho Road when he was beaten and robbed and left for dead. And I will read it just to reacquaint you to the story, if I can find where I'm at. There we go. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when we saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. 
As we read the story, I think the first thing that stands out is that in order to seek justice and love, you first have to get on the road. A place where robbers beat and leave people for dead is probably one of those roads that those of us that have the choice would choose a different route when possible. Those of us that have privilege have that opportunity to choose a different route, but others don't have that option. I believe that most of us can say that we have shown kindness and love to the poor and the oppressed at some point in our lives, and possibly even actively today. In her book, The Power of Proximity, I was challenged by this statement by the author, Michelle Ferrigno Warren. When we respond to the immediate needs of the poor and the oppressed, we are choosing to be merciful. That is good, but that is not necessarily justice. Justice is not a response to the problem, mercy is. Justice looks beyond the problem to see how people ended up in that broken place and works to overcome barriers so that they can be restored. The next step towards justice, that is often the scarier and even harder next step to take. I was just having a conversation with Jen about that yesterday, about how that, that's a big step to take. Um, and like the story of the Good Samaritan, God has called us to help individuals, but we also have to be willing to move into the work of restoration, focusing on the systems that often keep people and whole segments of society in brokenness. We can take small steps towards this restoration, but we also have to recognize that we may not see the completion of that restoration. I didn't get to see what happened at the Rose Hotel but that didn't make any of the contributions or the relationships invalid. And so we have to recognize that sometimes taking those steps, we may not be able to, we may not get to see that restoration come to completion. When we read Hosea 12.6 a couple weeks back, as I was reflecting on it, I was really struck and I captured that verse says, but you must return to your God, maintain love and justice and wait for your God always. When I was reflecting in that moment on what God was saying to me, I wrote down in my journal that without deepening my connection with Jesus, my pursuit of love and justice for this world would never be sustainable. In pursuing love, mercy, and justice, we need to be willing to push ourselves farther than we can imagine, not to wear ourselves out, but to grow stronger to help us tackle the insurmountable work God is doing in this world. We join this work because that's what we were created to do. This past summer, we took a deep dive into the Lord's Prayer. And in his book, I Ask for Wonder, Abraham Joshua Heschel wrote, We do not step out of the world when we pray. We merely see the world in a different setting. Prayer takes the mind out of narrowness and self-interest and enables us to see the world in the mirror of the holy. For when we commit ourselves to the extreme opposite of the ego, we can behold the situation from the aspect of God. When we pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, it means that we are acknowledging his presence, his kingship, and invite him to transform us to see the world, if only for a moment, through his eyes. That connected for me because as I think about those scary steps towards justice, it's not, again, it's not about me recognizing and me figuring out and me choosing those things. It's leaning on God and praying for him to help me see the world in a different way and knowing that I'm working 
in connection with him. So whether it's racism, immigration, education reform, the prison system, human trafficking, poverty, homelessness, or any of the many broken systems we experience or witness in our midst, when we humbly pray to see the world through the eyes of God, we can come closer to hear the stories of those most deeply impacted by these broken places. In our deepened understanding, we will have the ability to see and take steps to repair the broken systems and to hope that restoration is possible, rooted in our belief of God's promise to do so. As we are transformed by Jesus, we will connect more deeply to the mind of Jesus, the heart of Jesus, and the ways of Jesus. Look out for the left out. That's the family motto that Elliot selected. It was inspired by our college friend's daughter, who tragically left us too soon this past summer at the age of nine. It was the way that she lived her life, and it's a call to action that so many of our college friend community are continuing to instill and bring to life within their families. So as we sourced so many options, and that was the one she locked in on, I was like, of course, that is absolutely what we're going to do. So a little over two years ago, a group of neighbors started serving dinner at TC5 when the village was behind the Pagliacci in Inner Bay. It was a place where individuals and families were living in tents and under tarps as part of a program with a local organization in partnership with the city. A few months later, they moved to their new location beside the Magnolia Bridge on 15th. We, as a community of United, as well as other neighbors within our community, um, we have partnered with other churches, businesses, and neighbors um, to partner with the residents in building their homes, um, providing resources, and for us, including meals. We lamented with them when a lawsuit held up their ability to, permit, to get the permits that they needed for electricity in the winter when it was cold. The lack of running water that they had for two years, again, because of this lawsuit. We celebrated with them the harvest of their mini gardens to bring fresh veggies to the community. And we've celebrated as many have moved into permanent housing. And over the last several months, as the lawsuit was lifted, we celebrated when they got running water and now have showers and working bathrooms and continue to get additional resources, additional tiny homes to expand their village. They have this great little kitchen galley area um, to gather around, as well as a, grilling, a grill space, an outdoor space that they continue to gather around as community. Our small group of volunteers have served with perseverance for over two years. I will say it is not always easy to coordinate meals each and every week for 50 to 60 residents, but our small ragtag band of volunteers have found a way to never miss a Thursday. Through our perseverance, many residents have told us that they call Thursday night's family dinner. When re new residents move in, I've heard them telling others about Thursday dinners, and they'll bring them with them, helping them get comfortable to come out of their homes, which I will say, with this new round of residents, it took a long time to get them to come out of their homes and come and spend time with us. We're one of the few groups that stays and serves dinner. Most others kind of drop and peace out. And so having a friend come alongside that first time that they would come to dinner and talk about that, uh, even um, as part of their orientation, we're learning from each other and from our stories 
Um, several of the residents have really enjoyed watching Elliot and another little friend, Penny, um, grow up before their eyes, as over the last two years, uh, these two little ones have been faithfully serving. Um, and that's been very fun, just to be able to continue to share life with one another. We even provided Thanksgiving dinner last year. Several of us left Friendsgiving um, at our place, got some KFC catered, took it over and hung out and had a second Thanksgiving dinner with our friends over at Safe Harbor. We'll do it again this year. Um, so those of you that are at Friendsgiving, if anybody wants to come and do uh, Thanksgiving part two over with our friends at Safe Harbor, that will be another great opportunity. Um, we, again, Jen, um, who's not with us today, she's in Argentina, she recently became a member of their Community Action Committee. So as we talk about how do we move from mercy into justice and starting to really understand the systems that I, I would say from a city perspective, from a neighborhood perspective, um, and how these organizations work with these tiny home villages, why does this one work and why do some of the others not work? Um, we're starting to get more connected. So she's now part of the Community Action Committee, committee and has the ability to speak into the structures of the, the village, which are self-governed, um, as well as work with the city. She and others have also spoken to the city as members of the neighborhood to advocate for extensions uh, for the lease um, on the land that Safe Harbor currently resides. Recognizing that need for stability as part of what people need to be able to break out of the cycle of homelessness. And it's exciting to say that just recently, I think a couple weeks ago, which I think Aaron already talked about as well, um, they did get their lease extended because it was a two-year lease. We were coming up on the end of that lease and they just got it extended for another year. And so we will continue to come alongside and advocate um, for our friends and neighbors at Safe Harbor and really understanding how all of this works together. Um, again, we've just recently had somebody ask us about starting a Bible study. Um, and so I would ask that some of you maybe consider joining us in the work that we're doing with Safe Harbor, um, whether it's coming to some of those community action committee meetings, coming and advocating um, with, our counsel, with the councils, um, coming and helping start a Bible study, um, or coming and helping with dinner. There's lots of opportunities to really hear from and understand the needs um, of our neighbors just a few blocks away. For some of us today, the first step may be praying to see the world through God's eyes, if only for a moment, to take steps to be formed and transformed by him. For others, it's the opportunity to increase our awareness of the left out and truly seek to understand and see the injustice others experience firsthand, showing mercy on a path towards justice. And for others, it's time to take the next step towards engaging justice. But I will also say that we must acknowledge and respect where each of us are at in this journey. We can enter into a space of invitation and challenge, but if we're not being shaped by the mind, heart, and ways of Jesus, when the road is long and hard, and loneliness or cynicism or burnout find us, when, we're, when we are falling into these broken places, or sorry, as we face these broken spaces, it's really easy to fall into cynicism. What can I do about it? This is never going to change. And Jim Wallace says in his book, God's Politics, cynicism is a place for those who see what's happening in the world, but do not choose hope. 
Together with perseverance and with our hope of restoration through Jesus, we can bring our corners of the world a little closer to experiencing his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. So as we wrap up, there's two questions that we typically, or we have often asked, um, just to kind of meditate upon. And the first one is, what is God saying to you? And the second one is, what are you going to do about it? And so I know you've got your journals, and so maybe as you're pondering, as you're meditating upon, um, and making yourself open to hearing whatever God has to say, maybe capturing that in your journal as well.